thanks to our sponsor, Geomont. Have you thought about adding contact center capabilities into your existing Microsoft Teams user base? If so, take advantage of our promo to add BuzzEasy Contact Center for Teams from Geomont and get your first month subscription for free. It's a complete omni-channel experience that works seamlessly with Teams Voice. BuzzEasy was developed with best practices in Azure and offers a rich, easy-to-use experience. Geomont is a Microsoft Gold partner and part of the technology adoption program, and their BuzzEasy chatbot solution for Microsoft Teams has been chosen as a preferred solution on the Microsoft App Store. See the show notes for details around our special offer. This is the Microsoft Cloud Show, episode 416, where today CJ and I are going to cover a little bit of news and talk about what is Azure IoT Hub, recorded live July the 1st, 2021. Good day to you, Mr. Johnson. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. Unlike our last show where you tried to put us into July with our introduction, <laughs> I'm actually going to say we are officially in July. It's July the 1st today for the, the day the two of us are sitting down and record with this. So uh, record this episode. How are you doing today? I know I just asked you that, but what you've been up to, I guess I should say. <laughs> yeah, I'm not ahead of myself today. How about that? I'm That's back. good. I'm back on July the 1st where I ought to be. I'm back to the future. No, hold on. Back from the future. There you go. There we go. Yeah, there we go. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We are, or I'm up here in Seattle and we just survived like what I would consider, a, like, we had snowpocalypse a number of years ago. This mm-hmm. was kind of the opposite of snowpocalypse. This was 115 degree heat in Seattle, which is completely and absurdly unheard of. For those of you who don't understand freedom units, that is roughly 45, 44 degrees Celsius, something like that, which, you know, there were people out on their driveway putting frying pans out and and, uh, frying eggs. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) You know, because, you know, it's 115 or whatever in air temperature, but it obviously feels hotter than that. And then also the concrete absorbs the heat, right? And so... People had little like um, temperature, you know, remote temperature sensors that they would, uh, you know, shoot at the concrete or the asphalt and see the temperatures. There were people recording their driveways at 165. Wow. Yeah. So we survived, and it's now it's overcast, but it's still uh, still warm. But at least we've we've cooled down quite a lot from that carnage. Yeah. As somebody from Florida, if it makes you feel any better, I will tell you that that's hot. <laughs> yeah, man, it is. Yeah, I don't. I was hermited in my house with the aircon cranked. I had it snowing indoors, man. It was epic. <laughs> this is, if I'm going to have aircon installed, I'm going to get some use out of it when I need it. Because in Seattle, you don't really need it very much. Right. But every now, every now and again, we get these little waves. So, yeah, I had it cranked up. It was snowing. It was awesome. Man, it's nuts. I mean, it's like, this definitely won't make you feel any better. But, uh, man, you've got like... Not only was that hot as hell for you guys, it was only like eight, low 80s, mid 80s here in Northeast Florida. Now, our humidity was, you know, pegged at 100%, but which I, strangely enough, I can attest that that does not mean it's raining outside. It might feel like it or your clothes may look like it when you, after being outside for a bit, but that doesn't, humidity at 100% does not mean that it's actually raining outside. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, but still, that, Above 100. I mean, we, we'll get those times in like July, really August, September here in Florida. Granted, I'm Northeast Florida, so it's a little bit, it's different than like Orlando or Miami, but we'll get those times where we get what we call a heat index, which is kind of the equivalent of like a wind chill when it's cold. Well, the inverse of it, yeah. but uh, we'll, we'll get an index where it says, you know, hey, it's 98 degrees, but feels like is the heat index. And so it feels like, 
you know, 115, 116. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, yeah, it's just, that's downright unhealthy, man. That's, that You just got to be careful. Seriously, especially here. I mean, people aren't set up for it. Two thirds of houses don't have air con. There was a bunch of, bunch of people getting in trouble. So yeah. But anyway, we're through no that. No fun, man. How about you? What's news? See, I've been on the, I guess the work of the tech front. I've been spending my time. I wrapped, I think I mentioned this in the last week or two, but I wrapped up a, a big milestone with work stuff that I've been working on that have been felt over my shoulders. And so last week I was in one of those, when I finished like a big milestone with work, even though I've got like a bunch of other stuff on my plate, I kind of get petrified in the sense of what am I supposed to do now? Like <laughs> I know I've got stuff to do, but I don't That's know what next. I'm supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. 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 So this week I've been, last week was kind of getting organized. This week has been finally finishing up upgrading all of the projects in my SharePoint framework course to the latest version of the SharePoint framework. But this time it's taken longer because as I've been like upgrading projects along the years, I haven't been like removing the cruft from the stuff that's kind of accumulated in each one of these projects. So what I did is I went in and I, I deleted, I started brand new, like, you know, project, you know, file new project effectively from scratch for every single one. So I still got a few chapters left that I'm running through, but those are almost done because I'm getting really close to starting a big refresh of my course, of my video course, of my email course. So just there's some stuff that I just, I've wanted to get updated on it to get kind of caught up now that some things have kind of stabilized with uh, SharePoint framework over the last couple of years. And uh, now I have time to do it. So, but I'm really looking forward to diving into it and also getting to work on some other things that I've wanted to work on with Voitano, some courses, some really, I have a, a customer survey that I'm, I'm actually really excited or really, uh, I'm excited to, sh- to ask these questions to find out what people, what people want and what they're interested in. Is you always have, you always have ideas about stuff and then you start asking questions going, oh, ha, I'm completely off base. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. I know how that feels. I've asked that a couple of times. Like going, you know, would you guys, I think people really want this. You, what do you, what do you guys think about this? And like, no, we don't want that. We want this instead. And like, Oh, huh, I'm yeah. glad I asked. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Radio. <laughs> Here's a pizza. I didn't realize you were lactose intolerant and had a, a sensitivity to gluten. Uh, gluten. <laughs> My bad. Yeah. Sorry about that. Oops. Yeah. So that's great cool. feedback. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Right. Hey, so today we got two things we're going to do. We have a, a couple of news items that we definitely want to cover, make sure people stay up to date on some of the latest stuff going on, some security stuff, uh, mostly some security stuff around here, and then some stuff for the uh, 5G, people who are freaked out about 5G to scare them even more. But uh, we uh, we want to spend some time and uh, talk a little bit more about uh, some stuff, uh, a, a, a capability inside uh, that Microsoft Azure uh, has to offer that we haven't focused on in the past, um, you've got some experience with, and yep. just share with our listeners to drive, you know, hey, here's some awareness and learn some stuff. So yeah, I'm going to learn exactly. some stuff because you spent some time with it, and we'll talk more about Azure IoT Hub Perfect. in just a little bit. So Sounds good to me. Let's start by diving into some news. This episode is brought to you by ShareGate. Do you know how many files are shared outside your organization? Do you know which of your groups and teams are actually being used? Are you sure that every team in your tenant is a valid owner? Do you know why your users create new teams in Microsoft 365 groups? ShareGate's got your back. After helping thousands of customers move to Office 365, they've learned that success in the cloud involves more than just migration. And that's why they created ShareGate Apricot, an automated governance platform for Microsoft Teams and Microsoft 365 groups. 
Sharegate Apricot can help you answer questions like these without placing unnecessary restrictions on your users. With Sharegate Apricot, get full visibility across each team's lifecycle, from creation all the way through to archival. Automate manual tasks involved in identifying problem areas like inactive or orphan teams, and collaborate team owners on corrective measures to keep your teams tidy and secure. And that's why they've also combined Sharegate Desktop, their trusted migration and content management tool with Sharegate Apricot in a single subscription so that you have everything that you need to be successful in the Microsoft Cloud. Back to the show. All right, CJ, would you like to kick us off with a a bit of news here? Sure, I will go with quite an interesting piece of news I came across this morning. Do you remember some time back I mentioned that there was somebody at Microsoft who got caught generating Xbox gift cards and had taken 10 million bucks worth of Xbox gift cards? Mm-hmm. There is an article that we'll link to up here on Bloomberg Business Week, which details how an engineer, a fairly junior engineer at Microsoft, who was testing the store, so store code of you know pretending to buy things, making sure the purchasing process worked correctly, all of that went about defrauding Microsoft of over 10 million bucks worth of Xbox gift cards. And it talks about how he did it. And it's just an interesting read. And, you know, like many of these things, I won't get into all the detail, but like many of these things, it started off quite innocently. Like he just sort of realized that that these codes that were being generated in the test system when he bought stuff were actually real what is called five by five codes, you know, those 25 string letter sort of product key looking things mm-hmm. were actually real and that they were worth money and he could go sell them. And things spiraled out of control from, from there. And so over the period of two years, he ended up generating over $10 million worth of these things and um, anywhere between, you know, 10 and $15 or something, or 10, sorry, 10 and $100. He bought. He ended up buying one hundred and fifty-two thousand of these gift cards. <laughs> oh wow! In the test system, and then I think then went on selling those codes and uh, for Bitcoin essentially. So wow. it's a good read about how you know things went a little sideways for this guy. But there are interesting stories like this that pop up inside Microsoft all the time. Like there was one guy who started back in the days of buying per proc licenses for SQL Server. And Mm. you could buy them at the company store at employee prices. And it was like, I don't know, 200 bucks or something. And he was selling them out of the back of his car for 12 grand per proc. And and it wasn't a little bit suspicious that he was walking out of the company store holding literally a stack of boxes like that he could barely hold between his chin and his extended arms of SQL Server per processor license boxes. (laughs) You're like... Jay, do you think? <laughs> like, wonder. Do you want to ask a question, maybe, or at least just go to your manager, going, "I don't. Is this legit?" Yeah, I mean, the fact you used to be able to do all that stuff at the company store, but anyway, cloud has sort of uh, changed a lot of that. But anyway, that's uh, so. Yeah, have a read about this guy who defrauded Microsoft, and if you get an opportunity to do the same, just remember this guy. <laughs> I don't know why that reminds me. There was a tweet that was going around earlier this week. I don't know if this is, has any truth to it because I've never been a, a serious customer or somebody involved in this. But you know how Oracle kind of has a a reputation for being expensive and not very fleecing its customers and not a very like simplistic uh, deployment rollout stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see the tweet that like Deutsche Bank said that they selected Oracle Cloud to reduce their costs and into and, to, uh, and 
to, for simplicity and to re- reduce costs. And someone like wrote back or retweeted it was like going, and you chose Oracle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's fair, but I just found it funny. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. That's right. So that's interesting. So I, I have one here about LinkedIn. And this one is a little contentious. I'll let the I'll let the listener I'll let you decide if you think that this is a a fair representation of what happened. But in the last so there was a recently there was a breach of about I think it was 500 million, yeah, 500 million. Uh, records. Yeah, 500 million records uh, with LinkedIn, which is interesting because LinkedIn only ha- LinkedIn has 756 million users on their platform. So 500 million, there was a... So it was just uh, the recruiters? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the recruiters and the in-mail people. That's right. <laughs> so they said that this wasn't a data breach back then. It depends on how you look at it. And I'll come back to that in just a second. Mm. Well, this, in addition, uh, just in the last couple, in the last week, there apparently has been yet another second breach. Again, breach is a contentious term, at least in this context. You have to decide if this is if this is a breach. But there's a second breach that has happened with 700 million users. Now, that is 92% of the entire LinkedIn user base. So I know 700 million sounds big, but 92% is kind of the one that you want to pay attention to yeah, there. Yeah. This database that this guy has created is for sale on the dark web with records including phone numbers, physical addresses, geolocation, and inferred salaries. He obtained the data. He posted a million records of this 700 million. He posted it in a forum. I can't remember exactly where he did it, but he posted it in a forum. I have a link to this article on 9to5mac.com in our show notes. But people went through and they looked at it, and they looked at the 1 million records, and it looks genuine and up-to-date. What he did is he effectively he violated the LinkedIn terms of service, and he used their API. Now, they're saying he, he scraped the data. To me, scraping data with an API isn't really scraping data. That's like I'm using an API to get access to data that I have access to, and I'm just saving it offline. Scraping is like going through a website. Screen scraping. Yeah, screen scraping. So I, I think this the term of scraping here isn't really isn't legit. But yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that's there. The LinkedIn username and profile, geolocation records, professional and personal experience and background, genders, other social media accounts and usernames. LinkedIn is saying that they're still investigating it. They indicate that the data set is information that's scraped. And so they classify it not a data breach, but instead that and no private LinkedIn member data was exposed. They scraped it. He scraped the data, which is a violation of terms of service. Right. From my two cents, if you've got access to rip that much data off and you can share it, then I don't know if that's a breach, if that's a misconfiguration or what. Like, would you can? So to me, I don't consider it a breach if I go in and I create an Azure AD account that is given application permissions and I grant consent to that API and that app on behalf of all the users of my organization. And then someone uses the app ID and secret to use Graph to go get all the contact info of everybody in my organization and then turns around and sells it. That to me doesn't sound like a breach. That that, no. that to me doesn't sound like a flaw with Azure AD, Microsoft, Microsoft Graph. That sounds to me like it's a security misconfiguration. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like that's a human error. I mean, it's not if I don't want you to break into my house, I'm not going to give you a key in the code to my security alarm while I'm out of town for a month. I can see where they're coming from on this. It's definitely a 
massive breach of the terms of service. I'm surprised that somebody could do this. Me too. And take that much data through an API. You know, the first thing that popped into my head was like, man, they really need to talk to the graph team because those guys really know how to throttle you. And, and, <laughs> and, and so maybe LinkedIn should go talk to the graph team about implementing some 429 logic because even legit purposes of graph get throttled from time to time. And so, uh, yeah, maybe they could implement the same thing. <laughs> There's something about it, like if, if you don't want this to happen, if this is a misuse of it, then shouldn't there be something in the API that says, if this specific account has pulled this much data over this time frame, then flag it for someone should take a look at this. I mean, it, it, there's something weird about it. Like in your house, if you've got young kids and you keep looking at the cookie jar and that thing keeps going down, 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 or the kids are you know eating all of the ice cream and stuff, you're not just going to sit there and wait to the very end when it's like going, why do we have no cookies and no ice cream? Where is all? Where is everything? And like going, oh well, you know, we we ate it. Like, oh well, that's a breach. Like, did you not notice this? Yeah, I would have thought. Yeah, especially in today's age with the with how media goes crazy on you and stuff. I yeah. All right, I've got something a bit different here. Slack have come out with a new feature called that they call Huddles, not to be confused with Huddle, the actual application. Slack Huddles is jumping on the audio bandwagon. You know, sort of similar to Clubhouse and things like that. So now in Slack, you can have audio channels that are sort of persistent, I guess, and then people can just jump into that audio channel. It's like a, I think it's kind of like a meeting that's just always on. That's what it sounds like to me. It, lo- it looks like Discord. It looks like the Discord audio chats where you just kind of jump in and jump out instead of having to schedule something. Yeah, and their, their view on it is that you can have these channels that are sort of like like the water cooler channel or, you know, people could just pop into audio channels and it's, you know, it's it's they're open and and sort of mimic somebody like walking by your office and just just sticking their head in the door or at your desk or whatever and asking you questions or just informally meeting or not informally, I guess, maybe in an ad hoc manner meeting. So mm. uh, kind of interesting. I think this is pretty would be pretty useful for, for remote teams. Like I could see, you know, the dev team just having an always-on audio chat channel they can just drop into for stand-ups or for asking quick questions or whatnot, things like that. So I can see where they're doing it, mm-hmm. trying to create a you know, better solution for hybrid teams or people working remotely. That's kind of uh, kind of nifty. Mm-hmm. Slack. Yeah, it's cool. Huddles. It's cool. I mean, I, I'm not aware that Teams has something similar to this. It makes sense. I mean, I get it. I get them going after the like the Discord thing and kind of using that like a gamer chat. Like, hey, you know, everybody's playing this one game. You can kind of you know just jump in and just chat whenever. It like you said, it makes sense for like a dev team or it makes sense for. Like just the the water cooler thing. Let me just go jump in and see who's there and just talk to him instead of just typing things around. So yeah, exactly. This is an interesting one. So someone Microsoft, you know, so Microsoft has like when someone has uh, drivers or a driver kit or something. In order for these drivers to be certified, Microsoft reviews the drivers before they publish them, and then you know that if they've been you know signed checked off by Microsoft, they're basically they're safe. Apparently, somehow the process broke down. And Microsoft certified a driver that included rootkit malware. And effectively what this did was someone or somehow this driver called NetFilter, it redirects traffic to an IP in China, installs a root certificate in the registry that Microsoft certified this, made it through all their testing, and it was never detected as malware. 
it looks like what this does is that it, or it looks like this is is limited to the gaming sector, specifically in China. And it looks like the, what the person who did this, their goal was to use the driver to spoof their geolocation to cheat the system and play from anywhere and enable them to gain an advantage in games and possibly exploit other players by compromising their accounts through common tools like keyloggers. Microsoft has, you know, somebody noticed this, a malware analyst noticed this, they notified Microsoft, Microsoft promptly issued malware signatures to Windows Defender and are now looking into how this got through. Yeah. And they also suspended the account that submitted the driver and going all over all of their previous submissions. So looks like a process just simply broke down. They jumped on it right away when they were notified of it and addressed it. But doesn't it make you wonder what other ones have got through this? Mm-hmm. The nasty part about this, right, is like once it's signed by Microsoft, these drivers can get loaded essentially free reign to your system, right? They get they get loaded through kernel type level processes, and they're out of the sandbox. I think is my understanding. So they got sort of free reign to do whatever they like, and um, that's pretty that's pretty scary stuff. Totally, it totally is. You mentioned the five Gs. Do you want to talk about? This one we've got here before we move on. About, yes. About how Bill Gates is chipping everybody and AT&T is going to help him. And there's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek I have for this at the end of it. But in fact, what, micro, or what Microsoft has done is they've struck a deal with, with AT&T to where AT&T is going to run their entire mobility network on the Microsoft Azure for Operators cloud. To and It's going to enable them to deliver cost-effective 5G services at scale, which... The funny part of this now is that all those people that were scared of those 5G antennas, it's even worse now because now when you see the clouds in the sky, that's even 5G. So you can't even, <laughs> and you can't even burn those things down, guys. So you are screwed. Yeah. Wow. This is a big win by, for Microsoft. Yeah. It's a great, it's a good marquee, marquee uh, piece of news for them or marquee customer to tout about their, what is it called? Azure for operators. It's like a, you know, sort of telephony carrier-grade set of services on Azure. Microsoft will make this platform available to other carriers through Azure for Operators and invest in an ecosystem to enable simple, simpler and faster transition of, cl- of network workloads to the cloud. Yeah, they're coming for you. The aliens are invading next. I'm just worried about those 5G people. Get your tinfoil hat ready, AC. You know, it's funny. We, like when we set, I set up a Wi-Fi network at my, uh, at my, at our kids, at their pool, their, their club. And some of the radios we have, they're 2G radios and, and 5G radios. And somehow this came up. They were like, oh, yeah, we noticed the Wi-Fi is so much better. We had a meet this past weekend. Like, the meet, the, the Wi-Fi is so much better. I'm like, yeah, it is. And I'm going, man, have you heard anything? What do you know about that 5G stuff? And I'm like, oh, my God, here it comes. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Like, going, is that like, is that stuff, like, safe? I'm like, well, you better be careful because, you know, there's a lot of phones here that are actually connected to the 5G network that we have here at the, or the 5G signal that we have here at the pool. And they're like, are you sure? And I like pulled up the app and I'm like, yeah, check it out. In fact, what's the name of your phone? Oh, you're, you're Janice? Yeah. You, you got go. one of those new iPhone 12s. Yeah. You're actually connected to the 5G radio, not to the, not to the 2G uh, radio. And they're like, she's like, is that safe? I'm like, oh my God, GTFO. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, 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 yep. Oh, well. Anyway, cool. So that's all the news that we wanted to cover. Now, let's learn something. Sounds good. This episode is brought to you by Raygun. 
Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software. And what makes it so unique is that not only it tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit raygun.com to resolve issues faster and to deliver flawless digital experiences to your users. That's raygun.com to get started on your 14-day free trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. And now, back to the show. All right, CJ, I'm kind of teeing you up on this because I know a little bit about this, but I don't know much. And what we thought we would do, I get, hey, look, cards on the table. You and I, you know, we just like everybody else, human nature, you just kind of fall into routine. And we've been doing a lot of news shows in the last couple months but we really want to kind of highlight some features and things, some features from the Microsoft Cloud, both from the 365 side and also from the Azure side, and just talk about different things that maybe people won't have as much of awareness on. And the first one that we're going to do with this is we thought we'd do it with the Azure IoT Hub uh, resource, which is something that anybody can use. And we chose this one because you've got some experience using it yeah. lately. So. Let me just start off, and this is going to be, I like the way that we set this up, because the idea is is that I'm going to play the role of not knowing too much about this service, and you knowing more about it, and I don't have to fake it all that much, because I really don't know a whole lot about this service, so we thought about making... We thought about naming this episode like a deep dive into the Azure IoT Hub, but we didn't do that, because, well, first of all, it's episode 416... Which is that the and the uh, HTTP status code for 416 means that a client has when you get that back it means the client has asked for a portion of the file but that server can't supply that portion so we're not going to go with or I guess the technical <laughs> the, the the actual string is like request range not satisfiable so instead of a deep dive into Azure T Hub you're kicking back to me and just says why don't we just do what is IoT Hub like, sounds okay, good sounds good let's do it so what is let's start off with it what is the Azure IoT Hub. So what most people probably think of it as, or when they see, when they hear the name, they, they focus on the IoT part, right, which is Internet of Things. And so a lot of people, and myself included, for quite a while looked at that and went, oh, that's not for me. I don't work on an IoT thing, right? I don't have like a, a internet-connected light bulb project that I'm working on or sensor in a device or a, you know, whatever it happens to be in my day job that I'm working on. And so they often discount it. But so what? But I think that's a little, the, the name, it is accurate, but it, it doesn't go far enough. So what IoT Hub essentially is, is a way to communicate with many things to the cloud, right? So those many things could be IoT devices, but they also could just be, PCs or tablets or any computing device out there. And when I say out there, it doesn't mean in people's homes. It doesn't mean in your car, like you know, a radio or a device or a sensor in your car. It could be, for example, computers in your organization or devices in your organization, like tablets or, 
or it could be an IoT device in your organization as well. But what I'm getting at there is don't let the word IoT put you off from IoT Hub. It's really a, a, a set of services that have been wrapped up into an offering called IoT Hub that let you communicate from many things to your cloud service. Does that make sense? It does. So would you say, so is this kind of like, in, if I was going to build something that was going to be collecting input from lots of different sources from like, I don't want to call it just, not just sensors, but if, like you said, like if phones, PCs, whatever, I was going to be collecting data from a lot of different places uh, as an ingestion thing. You know, I may do an API, but I have to go through and, and write up all the code to have the API, accept all the inputs, and then be able to write the clients that are going to be actually submitting those things. Is this kind of like a replacement for doing that and making it simpler to accept like that ingestion from multiple devices into like one source? That is definitely the right way to think about it. So okay. rather than writing all of that plumbing yourself, IoT Hub essentially gives you an out-of-the-box set of services that you can plug into to orchestrate all of that communication. So for example, okay. let's use a scenario. Say I was in an enterprise and I wanted to deploy a piece of software onto every PC in the organization, I don't know, that maybe did some calculations, some number crunching when the computer wasn't being used, right? So people leave the office, their computers stay running perhaps, and you want to do sort of the SETI, SETI for the enterprise, right? Okay, yeah. You've got some big number crunching you need to do and you, and you need to use all that compute power uh, and you want to do it across all your desktops in the organization. I don't know if this is a real scenario, but it seems like a reasonable one to me. So, sure. So in that case, you write your piece of code that goes onto each of the computers, right? In that case, it's it's all the same piece of code, right? It just You just deploy it to... Uh, lots of PCs, say, I don't know, 100 or 1,000 PCs or something like that. And so that piece of software, you want to communicate with it to tell it what to do, and you want to have it communicate with, with your service or your central service to tell you what its results were, for example, or tell you what it's doing, right? So it's that bi-directional communication. You want to tell it to do things, and you want it to tell you the results of stuff, essentially. So you could do that a few ways. You could completely handcraft that. You could say... When that piece of software starts up on each of the PCs, it calls some API to get its work, and it does the work, and then it calls the API again to send its results, right? That would be a, a real simple option. But you can also use IoT Hub with its set of communication services to do that same thing, but in a very packaged way. So, for example, if you were using IoT Hub in that scenario, your software that, that runs on each of the PCs connects up to IoT Hub, and it has... Um, a couple of ways that it can be communicated with. One, it can say, it can receive messages from your central processing service, right? From your from your controller, if you will, mm-hmm. on a queue, right? So underlying IoT Hub is just a bunch of technologies we're already used to, APIs, message queues, and the like, right? So, But essentially it wraps up and makes it super easy for you to use. So each of those pieces of software, uh, as they spin up and run, they can connect up to your IoT Hub. They get connected to a queue that it can receive messages from your central processing system, and it can send messages back up to the cloud. So you don't have to worry about dealing with like authentication, for example, or the message bus system underneath. That is all done for you. All you do is register each instance that you're going to deploy in IoT Hub, and you say, they call them devices, right? Because it's kind of got that IoT flavor on things, but essentially it's, you know, clients or devices or instances or whatever. And it gives you a, you know, an ID and a key, 
like a username and a password, right? And the and the thing that you're deploying gets that essentially that username and password, that key, and it uses to connect to IoT Hub. But you can do that. It can be key based. It could be certificate based, or it could be token based. There's a bunch of different ways of of doing the auth. But once it's connected, then it's connected to a to a message queue essentially, and it can receive messages from your central processing system. So rather than your thing polling your API saying, have I got work, have I got work, have I got work, it can just spin up and stay there and then when there's work available, the central system that you write says, here's a piece of work, you send it to that device through IoT Hub and it will get it to that device and through a message queue system to receive it. I see. So it's kind of like giving us, it's giving you, like for those of you, for the, for, for the M365 developers that we have in, on, that are listening to the show, it's kind of like how we have like notifications or webhooks from like in Microsoft Graph or something to say, let me know when there's something out there to go do instead of me constantly pulling to do the work. Now the devices can just say, you let me know when I need to know something. I'm not going to keep pulling it. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do and send you the information I need to send you, but I'm not going to keep checking to see, is there something else I need to do? Is there something else I need to do? Okay. They call them message, you know, messages in, in queues, right? Or in IoT Hub. You send a message down to the thing that's running, and that message could be anything you want. It's just a, pay, it's just a JSON payload type message. It could, be, it could be a message that you, know, you define that just says, hey, do this thing. Or it could also be, hey, what's your status, right? Are you processing something right now? And it, so it can be a message and a response as well. So an RPC call, remote procedure call, right? It sends a message down to the thing that you've got running and says, what's your status? And that thing responds with, hey, I'm busy right now. I'm processing job, you know, one, two, three, or whatever it happens to be. Okay. You could build all of this like yourself, right? You could, you could do it with all with underlying APIs, with message buses, all of that. But what I liked about using IoT Hub in a couple of projects now is that it wraps up a lot of that for you. So it deals with auth, right? And it deals with the connection aspect of this as well. So let's say, for example, those computers were not sitting on the same network as your central processing system, right? The thing that's orchestrating and sending jobs out and stuff like that. Say those were on employees' laptops somewhere else, maybe at their houses or sitting in cars, you know, like maybe it's a laptop and a cop car, for example, mm-hmm. something out in the field on a different network, then you've got problems of how do you communicate with that thing, right? Because you've got the internet is, the internet starts getting in the way. You've got firewalls and routing and all of those kinds of things to deal with. What IoT Hub does, and by using message queues, is decouple those two things in such a way so that when the thing starts up, when the deployed piece of code starts up, it connects out to the cloud rather than the cloud connecting into it. So you don't have to deal with things like inbound port ports being opened and firewalls and all that sort of stuff. The piece of code that starts up on that laptop, when it starts up and connects up to IoT Hub, opens a channel out to IoT Hub and keeps it open. Right. So there's a persistent message queue-based connection up to IoT Hub that then you can, when your app that's orchestrating things says, I've got a job for you, it just pops it on the queue and IoT Hub will get it and route it down to that device over that open connection. So it makes it it super easy to connect to pieces of code and send send it jobs and get information from it when you know, networking things get in your way, like the internet. So it definitely sounds like it's like it really does simplify some stuff for you. I mean, stuff 
we could build by hand, but it, it simplifies the concept of like when I from the central piece that I've built and I need to talk to car number one, two, three, or I need to talk to PC number five, six, seven. Exactly. I can just call it by its ID and IoT hubs like going, Oh yeah, he's here. I know that I can send the message right to him. Or when he wakes back up and reconnects, I'll send the message to him. I don't get the message. You don't have to worry about that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So in IoT have the concepts of devices, right? So you register devices, but in my use cases, I've used it for things that aren't devices, right? They're just pieces of code that run in a bunch of places. So that many-to-one kind of communications, or that kind of concept. So you register them as devices, they get an ID and a secret or a certificate you could use for auth or whatever. And then when those things spin up, they connect up to IoT Hub, they start getting their messages, they can start sending up their results. There's some other sort of nifty capabilities that come with this, right? So communication, auth- authentication is one, communication is another. But then a third one is how do you configure those things running, right? So, for example, say you deployed a 1,000 of them. Each time you want to make a change to the configuration of them, you don't want to have to run around to those 1,000 PCs or 1,000 devices and change the, you know, the, the app settings file, right? You don't want to go right. tweak its config file with some new, new configuration. So one of the other things that IoT Hub gives you is a way for those devices to query for their configuration. Ah. And it will reach up to IoT Hub and say, hey, I'm device, after it's authenticated, obviously, I'm device, you know, ABCD, can you give me my configuration? And so rather than having an app settings JSON file full of config, your thing on the laptop or the device starts up, connects up to IoT Hub, says I'm device ABCD or whatever, give me my config, and it'll send a payload of configuration from IoT Hub down to your device. So that means that you're able to, across all your devices, manage their configuration from IoT Hub, right? So you could give them all sorts of different configuration. Whatever you would stick in App Settings JSON, for example, is a good way to think about it in a .NET application. Any of that config you could do through IoT Hub uh, that it didn't need for, for startup, at least, right? It was sort of post-startup configuration. So that could be, I don't know, it could be throttle limits, like don't use more than... X percentage of the CPU that you're running on to do this computation, for example. Or it could be, these are the types of jobs that you're going to need to be configured to run. And so that can be configuration that's passed down to your device. And so they call this digital twins, right? So in IoT Hub, you might hear this concept of called a digital twin. It's kind of that representation of all the configuration and of that device stored in IoT Hub. I just think of it as as config, essentially. But equally, another part of this is the opposite. So is status of what's going on, right? So like I said earlier, you could send a message down to the device and say, hey, what's your status? And it could respond back. But another way you could implement that is for the device to update its status periodically and for it to go into its digital twin in Azure IoT Hub. So it sort of sits alongside configuration, right? But it's a set of properties about itself. You could consider it config, but it's it's just a bunch of data about the device. So um, that could be status, for example. It could be, or it could be, say, I've used it for reporting all the environment details of the thing that it's running on. So in my case, when I used it last, it was reporting on 
what version of Windows, what what exactly what patch level it was at, what version of the of the .NET framework and runtime was installed, how much memory, what type of processor, what the install location of the software was, all of those kinds of environmental things. Mm-hmm. When the code booted up and ran and it authenticated and did all that stuff, it also sent that status or that state information back up to the cloud and saved it in IoT Hub that way. And so... Again, you could build all of this. You could do all of this with with the building blocks. But what IoT Hub gives you is just that that toolbox already sort of in a nice packaged offering to make it easy to easy to use. You're right when you started when you said this. Like just the fact that it's got IoT in the name. You know, I'm thinking immediately like Raspberry Pi, and it's like okay, I'm yeah, not doing. I'm not exactly. having a bunch of sensors that kind of stuff. But it it really does. I can see a lot of applications where this does make a lot of sense first, or would be useful for things that we built. I mean, I. Looking through the docs here, or playing with the docs as you're talking about it, being able to roll out firmware updates or manage firmware updates on the devices using the IoT Hub. I see that's a capability here. And then uploading files as well. So say log files from your from the thing that's running the code, right? So from the device or the or the laptop or computer or whatever. Say there are log files that that piece of code generates, then it can pick up those files and upload them. So it's again, yeah, it's something you could build. And in fact, I kind of built this when I built Hyperfish, right? Before IoT Hub came along, at Hyperfish we had on-premises bits of code that would connect up to our cloud service. And those bits of code would run within customers' on-premises environments. And so the way that it communicated with our cloud service was through APIs and through message queues. Mm. But we wrote all of that ourselves, right? Not the message queue we didn't write ourselves, but you know, that that mm-hmm. plumbing we had to write ourselves to get those, and we called them devices. I don't know, just by <laughs> sheer coincidence, we called them devices. But we deployed those on customer sites, and they would connect up to our cloud service and talk to us through message queues and things. And we could have used IoT Hub in that example and would have made our lives a lot simpler from not having to write all of that message queue plumbing and communications and authentication, for example, all ourselves. I've used it more recently. I'll give you a, a, an example. It is kind of IoT, but not kind of in the traditional sense of the word. So I'm working with a company at the moment that makes high-end indoor golf simulators, right? Think of mm. when you're when it's snowing outside and you're an avid golfer and you want to practice your swing. You can do that in the comfort of your own home with these, one of these high-end golf simulators. Or you can go to a place like an indoor golf center where they have a whole bunch of them already pre-set up and you can pay to, you know, pay some money to rent one out for an hour and go practice your swing. Anyway, we go deploy those simulators are hardware devices, right? There's that there's a PC involved, but then there's a bunch of other hardware. Those PCs we need to service and make sure that they're up and running and all that sort of stuff. And so recently we've used IoT Hub where the piece of software that gets deployed on the PC for each of these simulators connects up to our cloud service and reports its status and what it's currently doing and all that sort of stuff. And so we've used IoT Hub to do that. And so, yeah, in some respects, very similar problem to what I solved with at Hyperfish with message queues and APIs, but we were able to do you know, conceptually the same thing, but with IoT Hub in a much more straightforward manner. And not nearly as much code that you've got to maintain and, and feed and water and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it just makes it... Let- rely on the service to do most of the heavy lifting for you and yeah. you do more configuration stuff. So I was thinking about scenarios for this or or you know can at least conceptual situations where you might want to use this, right? Like you said, IoT 
sort of infers like a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino or some sort of embedded system, right? But there are lots of scenarios that I've been involved with over the years that I'm sure many of our listeners have as well, where you've got lots of things running somewhere that you need to control and communicate with. And where those run really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's on on your own network or in a bunch of virtual machines running up in Azure, for example, or your cust- or your employees' laptops, right? It could be all sorts of different sort of many-to-one type scenarios. And I think IoT Hub is a interesting, it could be a suitable choice in those scenarios because it just, you know, it, it wraps up a bunch of what would take quite a bit of work to write yourselves. Looks like a lot of stuff you can also control an instrument here. They've got a, a bunch of different SDKs from Java, Java from Java. .NET, <laughs> Java. Yeah, that was the mix of Java and .NET. So yeah, .NET, Java, Node.js, Python, and REST, and they're all, and C as well. And they've all got uh, different SDKs for both stuff running on the device or the service or a management API as well. So it looks like, and support Azure PowerShell, Azure CLI, just a classic Azure service you would expect, like just a full, well-rounded, full offering here. Yeah, and it's pretty easy to use. Like I'm a, I did it with I did it with C Sharp, and you know you include libraries on the client, and you include libraries on your cloud service project or whatever. All you really need to give to the client is it's however it's going to authenticate, like a cert or that key or whatever, and you configure your your connection using that, and away you go. And then listen for events and all the, all the kinds of things you'd normally expect. But underneath the covers, it's just wrapping up a bunch of existing technology and making it simpler for you to use. So if you really want to get into it, then you can dive into like how the connections are made, like using AMQP or or MQTT or just over HTTPS or whatever. And it's not black magic underneath the underneath the hood. It's you know existing tech that you can look into. They just sort of wrapped it up for you. That's cool, man. Yeah, it's really nifty. So I guess if you're thinking about or you're building a service that needs to communicate with many other bits of code running somewhere else, then IoT Hub might be a, a suitable choice. I guess one last thing I'd touch on this is when all those things out there are running and they want to send data back up to the cloud or back up to your service, you know, they can do that. But what do you do with that data once it's in your service? Typically, you want to do something with it. You might want to store it or process it. And I, I guess the last service that I'd mention or capability in IoT Hub it's really about routing that, those messages from your devices or from your clients to various places in Azure. So you can do things like when messages come in, you could route them to EventGrid, for example, or to Logic Apps or Stream Analytics or somewhere like that. So as all that data is coming up from your devices, that could be telemetry data or status data or whatever, just any sort of message you want. This could be sent up and then routed to the right place inside Azure that can be then picked up by other pieces of your application. That's cool. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing this with us. Well, sharing it with me at least too, but uh, sharing it with our listeners. I mean, this is, I definitely learned something from this. And yeah, hopefully it's been useful. It's one of those topics that you, I mean, I'm, I'm, I hear about it and I know that it's been talked about, you know, Microsoft talks about it a lot. I get conferences and I see other developers talking about it. But like you said, like we started off with it, IoT in the name just immediately makes me think that, you know, I don't play with, I don't play in that space. And so this isn't for me, but now I can see like, I can see where this would be useful. I can see where I have a a whole bunch of jobs that need to get done. And I want to scale up a bunch of containers to be able to do this, like using ACI. And maybe I want to be able to, as they're doing their work, you know, when's the next thing I need to do and all that stuff. So I can, 
I can see uh, a definite use for this. So yeah, nice to cover one of these and nice to kind of hear some real world use for it and stuff. So thank you very much. Yeah, hopefully it's sort of demystified it a bit and that it's not just about little chips and devices in your fridge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the point of this too was to get give our listeners just some awareness on it. And so you may be working on a project going, huh, this actually might be something that would solve a problem or make our lives easier in our current project so they can go take a look at it and at least they know more about it see if it's something they should even you know consider. Nice. Okay. How would you like to do some picks this week? I always love picks. ACs Voitanos delivers on-demand video-based training for developers on the latest SharePoint extensibility model from Microsoft in his course, Mastering the SharePoint Framework. Back to the show. All right, CJ, why don't you start us off then? What is your pick for this? Well, I know what your pick is for this week. And of course, it's something that's near and dear to both of our hearts. So uh, yeah, I'll let you go first. I love SR71 Blackbirds, A12s, Y12s. Anything that looks like a blackbird and goes fast mm-hmm. fascinates me, especially that it was all done with slide rules and designed, you know, essentially back in the 60s. So I've got a story this week from uh, that's published up on the Drive website, and or by the Drive, I should say. And it's essentially an interview with one of the crew chiefs who worked on uh, blackbirds on the SR-71. And one of the most notorious things about blackbirds is they had these massive engines that need to be started. And the way that they started was you got to spin them, you got to get them spinning, and then you essentially squirt some liquid into it that ignites immediately when with contact with air. I forget the name of it, it begins with a T. It's like Tetra something or other. It just sounds like it's going to explode. Like the name <laughs> sounds like it's going to explode. Anyway, so they'd, they'd have these TEB shots, T-E-B was the acronym, and they'd shoot a, a shot of TEB into the engine, which would hit air and explode and start the whole combustion cycle, right? But they had to get the engine spinning to start with, and these were big engines, and they had to get them up to quite quite a speed. And so when, this, when these blackbirds were sitting on the ground, they hooked up, essentially, triethyl borane TEB. There you go. You, you found it for me. There you go. <laughs> They hooked up external engines, right? Much like you would on a modern airliner, right? You'd hook up an external power source, for example, when it's on the ground. Except this case, it was, you know, hooking up a actual set of engines to the SR-71, like petrol or, yeah, petrol engines to the SR-71 to start these, to get the engines spinning. But it required two of them in concert, right? So the start cart, right, the cart that they rolled up to the outside of the SR-71, had two of these big Chevy engines in them. I believe they were Chevy engines. And they'd crank them up. And they'd have to get them going like full noise to be able to produce the power to turn these engines and get them spinning at the speed that they needed to. And often, they would make very bad noises because they would kind of get abused, right? They'd be, they'd be rolled out to the SR-71, not started. They'd start them up and they'd just floor it, Right. And so these, I think, like, big block Chevy engines would just be, like, revving the absolute snot out of them to get them up to speed. They'd be doing it from cold. And often, you know, that's not the way to treat an engine well, right? You've got to get it up to temperature, get it all nicely lubricated, all of that, so it's running smoothly, and then, and then rev the snot out of it. But this would go from cold to thermonuclear in about five seconds. And often they would, um, you know 
put a leg out of bed, as I call it. Like, you know, one of the you know one of the pistons would start wobbling a little bit, and then boom, you've got one of the uh, one of the rods would be poking out the side of the engine and blown an engine. <laughs> but anyway, it's just a really interesting interview with this crew chief who worked on this and and would often rev the snot out of these Chevy and Buick engines. I think they were, and often would uh, they'd be leaking vital fluids onto the tarmac or blowing up or doing whatnot. But they'd, you know, they'd keep their foot to the floor because once you'd, once you'd popped a tab shot into one of these engines, it was kind of like a, almost like a point of no return. They had like limited number of tab shots they could use and they needed them in flight as well. So for lighting the afterburners and stuff. So it was anyway, fun, fun story about SR71s. Yeah, it was. This is a, this is a fun week because it's, I know that we both picked the same picks and like you were going to use the link that I put on there that I was going to use. And so you use this one at first. And then I also have this one bookmarked to use it another week. It's so cool. Like how, like the stuff they came up with out of that skunk works program specifically to build like the SR 71 and like the, the B2 stealth bomber and stuff. This one, this plane, like I'm with you, this, the SR 71 to me, it's very much like the shuttle where it is just, it's such a unique machine, complex machine, and it's incredible what it can, what it could do. Yeah. It's disappointing it's not flying anymore. Oh, I'd love to. I never saw one fly in person. I'd- I've seen a couple of them up close in person yeah. on the ground, but it's one of those things like you sometimes you see this with an exotic, uh, exotic car or a race car or something, but I don't think anything says it more that even when it's sitting still, the SR-71 just looks like it's screaming fast. Yep. And the fact you had to wear spacesuits in it (laughs) (laughs) to pilot it. it, The the fact you had to wear spacesuits to pilot it, the fact that it leaked when it was on the ground and it had to refuel once it got up because when it goes as fast as it went, the friction of it hitting the air caused the skin of it to expand and seal the plane. So when it was on the ground and like cool, that it it just so much about it's like conceptually like this is what we're going to do we're going to have these crazy you know hot engines that are going to go incredible they're going to make it go incredibly fast but the skin is going to be it's just going to leak fuel when it's on the ground like that's safe i don't know not don't at all but this will work it'll be fine yeah <laughs> how about you what do you got for us this week i've got a special piece of history that happened in the last week or so i would expect that everyone that listens to this show and if you don't know knows who this is and if you don't you really shouldn't admit this if you're in this space <laughs> there's a gentleman by the name sir tim berners lee and tim berners lee i said that too fast he's basically the guy that invented the internet you can make arguments here but he's basically the guy that invented the internet and wrote the source code to it so there was recently an auction for an nft a non-fudgeable token and this is one of these new newish kind of things that's out there that based on blockchain, based on Ethereum, uh, cyber uh, crypto uh, technology. Yeah. Effectively what an NFT is, is it's allowing you to create a unique thing that you can sell for really in its design for things like code or that's easily, it could be easily copyable. So like, code or artwork or a, like a JPEG or an image or something like that. Mm-hmm. What they did, what an NFT does, and, and it enables you to, you know, basically make a digital thing scarce. It, say that there's only one version of this. It's like a digital trading card. Yeah. That they only put, say, one of one of those trading, like, you know, there might be a, I don't know, like a, 
a Jordan rookie season trading card, and maybe there's only one of them, right? Yeah. yeah. Or they make a couple NFTs for a couple, a couple like the first lot of the of the Jordan uh, rookie trading cards. Yeah. Well, the code for the internet, the code for the World Wide Web, was made into an NFT, or they have an NFT of it, and they sold it to auction on Sotheby's recently, and the winning bid went for five point. Four million dollars. I'm sad to say that my bid did not win. It was my bid was five point two million, and it went for five point four. Yeah, sorry. So you're in better shape. I got outbid right around the two point one mark, and then I just was like, I can't go any further. Wife will kill me. <laughs> Wife will kill me if I actually had won. No, I'm sorry, I didn't do that. <laughs> I was tempted. You know that you knew the bid was going to go above that, and I was like, oh. What if we go through and I actually make a bid for that? Just, just for the hell, just, just, to put, just to go on record. And though if you did, you'd either have to renege on it or go find the funding and actually buy it. Oh, that would be fun. That'd be pretty sweet. I mean, like, hey, I've got this. I need to sell it. And I need to sell it for more than this. I mean, it, it's not going to happen, right? Because you, well, maybe it doesn't down the road, but that's quite a thing to be sitting on. Yeah, not immediately. Yeah. Yeah, 5.4 million. But it came with all the source code from like the, the original source. Yep. Came with all the source code to it. It came with a uh, a message from Tim Berners-Lee, Sir Tim Berners-Lee. Of course, we can all see the message, so it's not like that's special to it. But it's just cool. It's a cool milestone to see that go. I mean, the, like a couple of weeks ago, they sold. They you did an NFT and sold on auction the YouTube video "Charlie Bit My Finger" oh, video, yeah. and then they bit my finger. Yep. Promptly pull it down off YouTube after they did that. But oh, really? I thought I read that. Huh. I think I read that, not thought. I think I read that. So, anyway, just cool. Nice. Cool bit of news. All right. Well, CJ, thanks again for taking the time to educate us on the Azure IoT Hub. Uh, got a little bit of news in there, a couple fun links, and that's going to bring us to a wrap of episode 416. Sounds good. Awesome. Good to see you again, man. And we will see you guys next week. Have fun. Did you like this episode? Please tweet about it and drop a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find out about our show and grow the audience, and we would really appreciate it. If you got a question for us, go to microsoftcloudshow.com slash questions, where you can submit it as text or record it as a wave or an MP3 and provide a link to it so that we can play your question on the show. You can also subscribe to us in Apple Podcasts, in the Google Play Store, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. And finally, sign up to our mailing list by heading over to our website, microsoftcloudshow.com. You'll get notices of each new episode as well as the show notes sent directly to you each week. We'll be back with another episode next week. Thanks for listening.